Last time I did this, it didn't start. Okay, tonight we're discussing Sukkis. As I mentioned to you in a, another class, the topic of holidays, that Judaism does not approach holidays as commemoration. That's not the way we approach holidays. That rather, every Jewish holiday is an experience that we're supposed to go through. It's an experience, like every experience in life, that is supposed to affect the way we live life. And whenever there's a historical event connected to a holiday, that is merely as an anchor by which we can understand what the experience that we're supposed to go through is. But the experience is something that we're supposed to go through at the time of the holiday. The first place to look to see what the experience of a holiday is, is certainly how the Torah describes the holiday and also the prayers, how the prayers address the holiday. And when it comes to Sukkot, Sukkot is known in the Torah as well as the prayers as the Zman Simchasenu, the time of joy, the time of our joy. That means that the experience that we're supposed to go through throughout the entire holiday of Sukkot is one of sheer joy. So much so that it's the opportunity for us to figure out how to have joy throughout the rest of the year. That's really what it means. To go through a proper sukkah is to figure out how to achieve a state of joy. And that's true for every holiday. Every holiday, the experience that we're supposed to go through on that holiday is supposed to be an experience that then gives us the energy and the nutrients for that particular aspect of the holiday to last us until the next holiday. It doesn't always work. Sometimes the fuel runs out. But everything about Sukkot, therefore, is in some way meant to give us an understanding how to achieve this state of joy. So to begin with, we'll take a look at the Torah's explanation as to why we sit in a sukkah during the holiday of sukkahs. And the Torah says that the reason we sit in a sukkah for the holiday is because Hoshafti has been a Yisrael besukos, is because when we were taken out of Egypt, when the exodus happened, when we left Egypt, God provided sukkahs for us. And there are two explanations in the Talmud what that means. Whether it means, according to one opinion, that God provided actual huts, like we build for ourselves, these little portable temporary dwellings that traveled with us throughout the 40 years of the desert, those were provided for us by God, or alternatively, on a much more spiritual 
kabbalistic idea but they're really one in the same in terms of the understanding is that when we left egypt god prepared for us huts made out of clouds that we lived in these you know these cloud-like homes that traveled with us throughout the 40 years in the desert and these cloud-like homes it's amazing what they did you know the jews that lived in the desert for 40 years we have this vision of what it must have been like to live in the desert for 40 years whereas the reality is is this is one of those rare occasions where making the story real is the exact opposite of what it was like because the experience that they had in the desert if according to this opinion that they were dwelling in these cloud formations was actually somewhat of a pampered existence and when it came time to enter into the land of Israel at the end of one year. We were supposed to go into Israel after one year, and we, got, we lost that opportunity, and we said that we had to stay in Israel for the next 40 years. One of the reasons is, is because after living in these cloud formations for a year, these Jews became incredibly spoiled. You know, when you go to the airport, and you get in past the security and now you have to walk to your gate you're in your terminal and you have to walk to your gate and you see the moving sidewalk is broken down or it's a, for you know so it's, it's it's under repair and you actually have to walk everyone goes oh because we've gotten so used to hopping on that thing and just three gates we can't walk three gates it's literally three gates how dare my moving floor not work? That was what it was like in the desert. It was these moving sidewalks of clouds that they walked in the desert, and under them were these moving clouds. They never had to step on a rock, never had to step on a thorn bush. The clouds paved the way. Actually says that it flattened the course in front of them down, so it was not only was it moving with them, but it was flat. These clouds enveloped the Jews and literally took care of almost all of their physical needs while they were in the desert. That is actually the first element of finding joy. One of the most basic human needs it is one of the most primal, basic human needs. Every human being alive must have an awareness that they are loved. There must be an awareness that someone loves them. And without it, life is unbearable. <coughs> the ultimate existence is to live with the awareness that the Creator loves me. That would be the ultimate. Rabbi Akiva, who became the great Rabbi Akiva, started out as an ignorant individual at the age of 40. He did not know anything at the age of 40. And he went on to become one of the greatest leaders in Jewish history in terms of his scholarly 
prowess and as well as his leadership abilities. When he started out, he knew nothing. And the reason, one of the reasons he was able to embark on this journey is because he had a woman that believed in him and loved him. And that gave him the fortitude to be able to withstand the ridicule of the school children and the humiliation of going back to school at the age of 40 and the frustration of having to learn from start and from scratch at that age because he had a woman that believed in him. And he is the one that ultimately went on to teach the Jewish people the concept that God loves humanity. Beloved is man, is a teaching of Rabbi Akiva. To live with the awareness that we are loved is an unbelievable state of joy. You know, imagine, I, always, I think I've given you this example before, but imagine you go on a trip and you come back after your trip and you get off at LAX and you get in your taxi or whoever came to pick you up and you're driving out of LAX and you get onto Century Boulevard there where all the billboards are and the first billboard you see says, Deanna, welcome back to LA. We missed you. The city of LA. How do you feel? You feel amazing. You feel awesome. You, that, there could have been the worst flight of your life. And you're like, oh my gosh, wow. You know, as a matter of fact, this is actually a marketing genius that Coca-Cola has now embarked on. An experimentation marketing genius. It's this concept that I just mentioned. You know that Coke now has this ridiculous, I, I think it's ridiculous, but everyone's into it, that you can buy the bottles with your name on it. Have you seen this? You can get that, that you go into a store and they'll have all the, and they'll have names, like keychains, you know, you go in and you see all the keychains, and you can go and you can get a bottle of Coke with your name on it. It's already printed on it. So, no, now, so now, what they have is, what they have in Israel, experimentation in Israel, is you download an app onto your iPhone, and you download an app onto your iPhone, and you plug in your name, and as you're driving around the main highways in Israel, they have billboards. You know how the digital billboards, you know, they're all over the city, you have these digital billboards. Well, the app has GPS in it, so it knows your location. It then feeds to the satellite, letting the billboard know that you're driving towards that billboard, and your phone buzzes, letting you know to look at the billboard. And sure enough, there on the billboard it says, enjoy a Coke today, Delta. That's what it will say on the billboard. You're like, wow! <laughs> and you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll hit the driver, look at that! <laughs> you feel amazing! Look at that, there's a billboard with my name on it. Well, that's the experience we're actually supposed to get every day when we wake up. When we wake up. When we wake up, we're supposed to look at the world and say that there's a huge billboard that says, Welcome back to my world, God. It's an amazing experience that we're supposed to feel when we wake up. That experience, that sensation of love actually comes from, the source of it comes from an awareness 
that we are being given, that we are being taken care of. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. The root of that word means to give. Because the expression of love, not the emotion of love, not the sensation of love, the expression of love is giving. And when we have an awareness that someone is giving us, then we have a recognition that that person clearly loves us, and then we feel love back. When the Jews left Egypt, all their needs were taken care of. It was an expression of pure love that we're supposed to now experience that when we sit in the sukkah. When we sit in the sukkah, we're supposed to have an understanding that, you know what? God loves me. It's literally like, if you would, imagine, forget the billboard, it's imagine the hug of a parent. Everybody loves the hug of a parent. I don't care how old you are, except maybe from the ages 16 to 20. I'll get back to you on that. But everyone loves the hug of a parent because that hug, that embracing, is the envelopment of that love. It's literally the physical manifestation embracing your very being. And that's what we're supposed to feel when we step into the sukkah. It's as if you will, God giving each one of us a massive hug. I like that and that is supposed to fill you with a tremendous sense of warmth and love, which automatically leads to joy. It's automatic. When you feel loved, you feel joy. It is only because we cease feeling the love. Whether we're being loved or not, we can cease to feel it. We can convince ourselves that we're not loved. The tragedy is, is that this is actually the natural state of a human being until it has become corrupted. The natural state of every single one of us is actually to be in a state of sheer joy. Now, I know when I say that, you look at me like, really? I, I don't seem to feel that. And that's because, as I said, it's become corrupted. But if you want to see that this is true, all you need to do is go back and look at a toddler. Without anybody ever saying no to the toddler. As long as nobody says the word no, they are in a total state of pure joy and ecstasy about everything. Everything is a wonder. Everything is amazing. Everything is a giggle. It's only until there's a no that that's destroyed. But otherwise, everything is, wow, look at the, it, you know, I, I tell the analogy when my wife and I first moved here to LA and I have subsequent ones, but this one just always resonated with me because it was my first. But we lived in a townhouse complex in Santa Monica. And it was you know, a townhouse complex in Santa Monica. There's a gate, and then you go in the gate, and there were two buildings that ran down a corridor, and there were five units on each side. That's it. So it doesn't take long to walk five units. It's kind of like the example I gave you of walking three gates really is not that difficult. It doesn't take that long to walk three gates. Five units is even less of a distance. It could sometimes take me at that time with my 
two-year-old toddler, it could sometimes take me a half an hour to get from our unit, which was the fourth unit, not even the last unit, to the gate. Because every two steps, wow, Tati, look at that! Yes, Tina, an ant. <laughs> and then I'd let her look at the ant for a little bit until finally it went into the crack, and then I'd be like, okay, let's go. And then she'd take a few more steps. Whoa, look at that! Oh, a crack. <laughs> yes, there's probably an ant in that crack. Yes, let's wait five minutes and see if an ant comes out. And it would, that's what it would be like because everything is amazing. Until what? Until someone says no. And then life is horrible. It's the end of the world as you know it. That's it, done. Life is over. And the tragedy is, is that that becomes habitual. It becomes habitual that we start to focus on that there's no in the world. And no represents all the things that I don't like. That's all that no is. No doesn't mean mommy or daddy saying no. No just represents, I didn't get it my way. There's suffering. There's frustration. There's trials and tribulations. There's downfalls. It doesn't go always the way I want it to go. And you know what? Over time, we actually become habitually accustomed to focusing on that. That's all we see. To the point where I'm telling you a fascinating experiment, next time you're driving on 405, I would not suggest doing it because on side street just because it's too there's not enough time where you're actually just going in one direction for long enough that you can actually just look at someone not for too long ladies don't get too distracted <laughs> there are cars in front of you but when you're driving on 405 just take a look at people's faces nobody looks happy and I'm not talking when there's traffic that's understandable I'm talking when it's moving everyone is miserable it's because we have habitually become accustomed to just uh, uh. and you want to see an amazing thing all we have to do we don't even have to work that hard if we just forget about that we immediately go back to the state of pure joy next time you're at an amusement park I want you to do an experiment don't go on the roller coaster until you've gone to the exit first and just spend three rides three cycles of people coming off the exit of a roller coaster it is a fascinating experiment because what will you see everyone is giddy except for the person that threw up but aside from that everyone else is giddy with laughter even the person that doesn't enjoy it as long as they didn't throw up. But even the person that doesn't enjoy it is giddy. Now they might say, I'm never doing that again. But they're giddy. Everyone is laughing, hysterical. Why? I'm alive. <laughs> That's it. I'm alive. And just the fact that I'm alive is enough to be giddy. Until what? Until we walk to the next line. line. And slowly the giddiness yes. subsides. It's an amazing analogy. 
And we see that, oh my God, you, it's a half hour wait. Oh, should we wait? You know, let, let's go try the, what, you know, let's go try the rocket thing and see what's over there. And you walk over there. Oh my God, a 50 minute wait. Oh, we blew it. We should have stayed over there. It would have been in only 20 minutes by now. Forget it. Let's get a drink. Oh my God, $4 for a Coke. This place stinks. All, all of a sudden we went from sheer giddy to sheer frustration and annoyment until we finally just suffer through the line oh god do we get on a ride and we forget about all that stuff and we're giddy again what that tells you is is that we have to figure out a way to get rid of the bad habit the law of Sukkot is a fascinating law. The Talmud says that the requirement of Sukkot is that we leave our permanent dwelling and we live in a temporary dwelling for seven days. But the language that it uses is something very fascinating. It says, say, go out, midirat keva. Go out from a dira. A dira is a dwelling. Keva. Keva doesn't mean permanent. Keva means established, rooted. Keva means koveya. Koveya means it's rooted, it's set. Something is a set designated time, it means it's koveya. And the Rambam, who is one of the most prominent philosophers, legal scholars in Judaism when he speaks about habit when he speaks about working on habit and cultivating good habits he uses that language that something should become koveya in ourselves that tells you that the language of koveya the language of something set is specifically focusing on habit that the concept of sukkahs is that we're supposed to break out of our habitual state of existence and realize that habits can be broken habits can be removed habits are temporary if we want them to be and realize that we have become habitual pessimists. That's what we've become. You know, do you ever notice, you see this certainly much more with guys, and the only reason I say that is perhaps because I'm a guy, and so I don't have as much experience with how girls interact with each other, although I'm starting to get it in my home. But, I certainly see it with men, and I'm sure it's the same with women. But you ever notice that a relationship pretty much, once you start to act a certain way with someone, it perpetuates itself? That that's the way you continue to act with that person? For example, if you start off a relationship, let's say you started off in not that healthiest of ways, not the most positive of ways. For example, you start off a relationship razzing each other. 
poking fun at each other. Very common for men to do this. But let's say you start off a relationship in a very superficial, almost petty way of treating each other. You ever notice that it's incredibly difficult to stop? That that's the way you become accustomed to dealing with that person and that person dealing with you, and it's habitual. Well, don't be misled to think that that's only the way we treat other people. That's the way we treat ourselves as well. We habitually treat ourselves a certain way. That when we're in situations, we will allow ourselves to habitually become pessimistic, become negative, become naysayers, become just pure negativity. And that's what you see on the 405. That's what you see when people are just walking down the street. Sukkis comes along and says, break out of that. Break out of the, that habitual existence that you're living in and go and dwell in the sukkah. When you're living in a sukkah, there's a fascinating law about the sukkah. And that is that the majority of the laws of the sukkah have to do with the covering of the sukkah. It has to do with the covering. There's, there are some laws dealing with the walls but, and the size and the dimensions, but the bulk of the legality of a sukkah has to do with what is covering the sukkah. And the most prevalent law is what the material is. What are you allowed to put on top of the sukkah? And it cannot be anything man-made. It must be all natural things. But it can't just be natural. It can't be something which is attached to the ground and growing. It must be something which has been detached from the ground, which means it's something that's no longer living. And as a matter of fact, when the Torah speaks about the covering of the sukkah, it actually says that the things that you're supposed to put on the sukkah, on the top of the sukkah, are the remnants of what you detach from the ground. Because what do you detach from the ground? Harvest. When you go and you harvest your crops and you chop the trees to get stuff that you're going to use for fuel, for etc., 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 all the leftover stuff that you would normally dispose of, no, that's what you have to use for your covering of your sukkah. I don't know if I shared the story with you, but it, I must share the story of the Marantz. It's a Yiddish tale about the orange. Have I shared the story with you about the orange? A family living in probably Siberia. All these stories are always in Siberia. <laughs> family living certainly in a place, wherever it is, it doesn't matter where it is, 
but it's certainly in a place where there's no citrus fruit growing. An orange. And they receive as a gift an orange. They had never seen an orange before. And they were amazed at this wonder that was standing in front of them. This wonder of creation, this orange. And so they all gathered round. They invited the neighbors to all come and look at it. The color of the rind, the vibrant color orange. And they passed it around so they could all feel the texture, the grooves. You know, it's like the golf ball grooves, but on a, you know, multiplied by at least a hundredfold. You, know, you ever hold a golf ball? It's a pretty cool sensation, all those little grooves. An orange is multiplied. And they passed it around, and everyone was feeling it and holding it. And, and they put it on a shelf so they could just look at it. And kind of like a strobe light, they were just mesmerized by it. But of course they realized that if they just look at it, then it will eventually spoil, and that was a waste. <laughs> so after a few days of just looking at it, they realized, well, we have to eat it. So the master of the household took it and took a very sharp knife and very carefully cut the rind so that he could peel the rind off without damaging the orange inside and without destroying the rind as well. And as he peeled it off, the, you know, that, that, ac that acid that's in the rind started to rub on his fingers and he was able to smell the citrus even more vibrant than they were experiencing it before. And his mouth started to water just from that. And they took the rind and they put it in a jar and put it in the cupboard and then they took the orange and carefully broke it up into its individual sections and carefully peeled off all the white remnants of the rind until they just had just the, where there's a special name for those, uh, oh, the sections of the orange. The segment of the orange, I don't know if that's the right word, but we'll go with that. Until every, and they handed it out so that everyone from the family got their own little section of the orange. And everyone took a bite and put it in their mouth and bit into it. And the explosion of juice was amazing. They had never had a sensation like that. Their mouth filled with juice and they ate it. Oh, and then afterwards they went back to the cupboard and they took out the rind. And the mother came and opened the jar that the rind was in and smashed it and chopped it and ground it up and put it in a pot and boiled it with water and then let it sit and turned it into a gel made a jelly out of this rind and every day they would take a piece of stale bread remember this story is you know, one of these ancient Yiddish tales in Siberia of course where they only had stale bread and they took a piece of stale bread and they would take a little smear of this orange marmalade and smear it on it. Mm. And it lasted them four months. They enjoyed this orange for four months. When's the last time we enjoyed anything like that? When's the last time we enjoyed anything like that? And the reason is so simple. The reason is, is because we become so accustomed to what we have that it becomes 
like stuff we just throw away. That the idea that you sit in the sukkah is the understanding that everything we have, everything we have, down to the stuff that we just discard, that we treat like nothing, is the very stuff that is what protects us. Because what's the roof? The roof is the symbol of protection. It's not the walls. The walls protect. But the concept is the roof. Everyone says, no one ever says, you know, I need to make enough money so I have some walls around me. Nobody says that. Everyone says, I need to make enough money so that I have a roof over my head. Well, that's great. So you made enough money so you have four posts and a thing over your head. No, you need the walls. But the expression of the roof over your head is that which is what's protecting me in this world. An understanding of joy, an understanding of happiness is a realization that everything that we have is there that provides us with joy, but most importantly, the basic essentials of just sheer shelter, of just that which we treat like nothing, that which we treat as inconsequential are the very things that are actually the most ultimate when it comes to our joy. When it comes to our happiness and joy in life, when it comes down to it and all else fails, it is the bare essentials that really give us a true sense of joy. And ultimately, the ultimate sense of joy is an understanding that the Rolling Stones were very correct. With one caveat. You have to just take out the word sometimes. You can't always get what you want. But if you try real hard, you just might find that you get what you need. And that is so true that the understanding of Sukkot is that for one week we put aside all the extras that we search so hard for to make sure that we have it, that it's ours, that it's grained in, that it's pounded into the ground, that we have our quote-unquote comforts that literally become our, not comforts, but our necessities, because they become koveya, they become set in the ground, that for one week we need to be able to walk away from that, to be able to have the understanding that, you know what, I don't need any of that. It's nice to have, and we're not required to live in the sukkah all year round. No, at the end of sukkahs you leave the sukkah, and you go back into the house, and you go back into the comforts of this world but with a whole new understanding that those comforts are not necessities. They are now luxuries that will enhance our lives because we'll have a real understanding of their value. You know, there's a concept about sukkahs that 
ultimately, the whole Jewish people will dwell in one sukkah. It's not our time to dwell, to go into where we see that and what exactly that means, that every, that all the Jewish people will dwell in one sukkah. I mean, that would have to be the largest, that would have to be the largest structure on the face of the earth, let alone a portable structure, a temporary structure. But the concept is, is that all the Jewish people will be together, united as one. Aside from living in the sukkah, one of the other mitzvahs that we do on sukkahs is that we shake what's known as the four species. We take a lulav, which is this tall palm branch. We take an esrog, which has got to be one of the most bizarre fruits on earth. We take a hadassim plant, which is myrtle. And we take a rovois, which are willows. And we hold them together and shake them. It's a very bizarre mitzvah. There's lots of mitzvahs that we have that are, quite frankly, on the outset, when you look at them, quite peculiar. But I want to share with you an insight and then take it to the next step in our concept of sukkahs and what I spoke about, achieving joy and finding joy and achieving unity. Those four species, we are told, represent four types of personalities. Because each one of those species is very unique in that one of them is edible and has no smell. One of them has smell and is not edible. One of them is neither edible nor has any smell whatsoever. And one of them has both. It's edible and it has a wonderful smell. And those are four different types of personalities, four different types of people. Smell represents the internal aspect of a person. The taste is the external. There are some people that on the outset neither look good nor smell good. And I don't mean physically. <laughs> they just, they don't come across as nice people and good people and they're not nice people, good people. There are some people though that they don't look good but they actually smell good that they don't come across, they're not polished, they're not refined, they don't come across as such well-rounded individuals, but yet, at the core of their being, they're good people. There are those individuals that are the reverse, that they come across as f wonderful people, but it's a very superficial aspect of there's not a tremendous sense of depth to them. And then there's ultimately those people that have both. Alternatively, you can look at these two people as 
these things as smell and taste as wisdom versus actions. And the wisdom is the internal aspect of a person, and actions are the external. And just go back and substitute what I said, and you'll see that it plays out very, very similar. On sukkas, we take all four and we put them together because the concept of unity is that we are one and that we cannot just say, well, you know, oh well, no, we hang out with the good people and oh well, too bad on them. The Jewish people being one means that we are one and we are responsible for each and every one of us. And therefore, the only way that we can achieve that sense of ultimate envelopment, if you will, of the hug of the Creator, is if the Jewish people come together as one. And the only way the Jewish people are going to come together as one is if we actively figure out a way to bring the Jewish people together. And that means all the Jewish people, not just those that have a sense of awareness, not just those that have a sense of connection. No. Every Jew. Every Jew. And ultimately every human. We're responsible for the world. The world has to be brought together. We have to fix the world. We have to change the world and unify the world. And bring the world to the ultimate sense of living in the sukkah on a very, very esoteric idea, idea, that's why the Talmud speaks about the end of days, that there's going to be a celebration of Sukkot, not any other holiday. There's going to be a celebration of Sukkot, because this idea of the world coming to its culmination and coming to its state of utopia is through the means of this concept of unity. Unity can only be achieved in one way. There's only one way to achieve unity. And that is humility. Because the only way that I can have unity is if I'm willing to forgo my ego. For example, when it comes to accomplishing a goal. And there's a team involved in trying to accomplish that goal. The only way that goal is going to be accomplished if everyone gets rid of the ego. And you know what? If you've got an idea, I want to hear it. I don't care about my idea. I want to know what's the best idea. That's why the humblest of all people was also the greatest Jew that ever lived. Moses. is because Moses didn't care about his agenda, his name. Moses cared about what was the right thing, what needed to be done. Ultimately, the only way to really have joy is to have unity. Because the unity that I'm speaking about is not limited to unity with other people. It's also relegated to unity with ourselves. One of the
the most detrimental aspects of people finding happiness and joy in life is a sense of discomfort with who they are. A sense of disunity with themselves. A lack of understanding of who am I? And so I create these facades because I don't have a sense of unity with myself. I'm not comfortable with who I am. And when I say comfortable here, I want to be very careful. I don't mean achieving comfort in that I don't want to grow. No, that's comfort. Comfort in life is stagnant, and that is death. Stagnancy equals homeostasis equals death. We don't want to become comfortable in who we are. We want to be comfortable with who we are at that time. There's a difference. We have to be comfortable with who we are and not create facades and put on airs and act certain ways to try and impress people, to try and befriend people, to try and fit in. Because the only reason we do that is because we have a lack of unity with ourselves. The only way to really have joy is to recognize that, you know what? There's many facets of me. There are those facets of me that are the esrog, the fruit that smells good and tastes good. I have wonderful character traits, and there are things that I know about life. But you know what? There are areas where I'm incredibly deficient, and that I'm not only not smelling good nor, nor tasting good. There's a, a multitude of aspects of myself. And you know what I have to be? I have to be whole with that. I have to be showing. I have to be whole. I have to have unity with myself. I have to get rid of the ego. And I have to be able to take all the parts of me and put them together. That is what Sukkis is all about. Sukkis is, as I called the class, the ability to find joy. Because joy is something we find. We have to seek it out. But you know what the beauty is? We don't have to look that far. The joy is right there around us. It's enveloping us at all times. That's the idea of the sukkha. It's literally enveloping us at all times. If we just choose to break the habit, focus on that which really matters, the bare essentials, live with an awareness that God loves me, and I'm in ecstasy. And ultimately then, achieve unity. Get rid of whatever ego I have that makes me uncomfortable with certain parts of myself to be able to open up and allow myself to literally be vulnerable so that I can become unified with others and live in a state of trying to create that sukkah that envelops the world and figure out how to take that joy and share it with the world. Because ultimately that's what Sukkot is all about. Figuring out how to take that joy and give it to the world.
Any questions? So how did you choose music? Well, to start with, like I said, to start with is we have to f realize that there are many aspects of who I am. <coughs> to not be, not to put a blind eye on my misgivings, nor not deny the positive things. I find that most people walk around not with a huge ego. Rather, most people walk around creating a huge ego to mask a massive self-deprecating image of themselves. No, it's the, I'm, saying, I'm saying that they've created an ego to say, look how great I am, to mask the actual image of them walking around thinking, I'm a nobody, I'm a failure. And that's, that's, a, that's a schizophrenic approach to life. That's not unity. A schizophrenic has no unity. There are multiple personalities. That's the essence of a schizophrenic. There's multiple personalities that are not one with each other. No. Become one with yourself. Not comfortable in who you are and leave it at that. No. But to at least begin with an awareness of who am I. I've got tremendous positive things about me. And I've got deficiencies. I've got shortcomings. And... That doesn't make me a failure, and that doesn't make me God's gift to humanity. It makes me, me. That's me, and that's beautiful. I'm beautiful. You want to know how I know, how I know I'm beautiful? Because God loves me. God doesn't love junk. It's a beautiful t-shirt. I saw this little five-year-old kid. I know I'm not junk because God doesn't make junk. That's beautiful. That's me, and that's beautiful. I've got shortcomings. I've got misgivings. I've got fallacies, but I've got strengths, and I've got accomplishments, and I've got achievement, and I've got potential, and I've got gifts. And you know what? That's me as a package. And I'm okay with that. I'm not okay staying there. I'm not comfortable. But I know that that's me. And I'm not hiding it. And I'm not negating it. And I'm not masking it. And I'm not glorifying it. I'm living with it. I'm okay with it. That's unity. That's unity with me. Yeah. I had a question actually going off that. Like the idea you were saying is not to stay there. Right. When you say that, do you mean that, that the goal is to kind of always seek improvement? Yes. Oh, okay. No, we always seek the other one. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you don't want to stay there. You want to constantly like... <laughs> regress. <laughs> yeah, don't just say, this yeah. is me, I'm flawed. <laughs> this, this is me, this is who I am. And you know what? I'm, I'm sorry to say that, that a lot of pop modern psychology is, look, that's who you are. It is what it is, accept who you are and leave it at that. No! Accept who you are and be comfortable that that's where you are right now. Mm -hmm. That's where you are right now. That's me. Mm -hmm. That's unity with me. I know who I am. I'm, and, and you know what? 
but I know where I got to get to. Now that I recognize that I do have mm-hmm. fallacies, well, I got to get rid of those. Mm-hmm. That's what we spoke about Rosh Hashanah. Mm-hmm. Right? I got to get rid of those. Mm-hmm. But that's why this comes after Rosh Hashanah. This comes after Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. It's a culmination. It's a culmination because Rosh Hashanah is all about where do I want to get to? That's what Rosh Hashanah was all about. Rosh Hashanah was not about the past. It's where do I want to get to? Now, the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is now, okay, let me try and act that way. That's what these days are. People ask me, what am I supposed to do between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? I said, great, did you have a picture of who you wanted to be on Rosh Hashanah? Yeah, live it for one week. That's it, one week. It's not that hard. It's hard, but it's not that hard. I didn't say live it for the rest of your life, because you can't. You're human. You're going to mess up. But for one week, live it. You had that picture of who you wanted to be? Live it for one week. Okay, now Yom Kippur is all about... Okay, wow, look what I did for one week. Now, why in the world couldn't I do that all last year? I messed up last year. I really messed up. I messed up here, 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 here. Wow. You realize if I hadn't done that where I could be right now? I could be so much closer to where I said I wanted to be on Rosh Hashanah. Oh, that should make me feel horrible. To the extent that I say, no more. And if I get to the point where I really mean it, no more. Not guilt and failure. No. No more. I'm done with that. Done. I walk out totally cleansed. Victorious. I beat it. It's still there, but I beat it. Because now, I know I can do it. And you know what? Now I can celebrate. I can live with joy. With an awareness. Those are my fallacies. But I'm not going to stay there. How do I know I'm not going to stay there? Because I just went through a Yom Kippur. I know I'm not staying there. And I'm sitting in a sukkah. I know I can break habits. I just left my house. I'm living in this temporary dwelling. Talk about humility. That's, that's the essence of unity is humility. Humility. Look at that. I'm living in a hut. And I'm there. That's it. So that's the concept. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get there. So, sorry. That's I'm right. trying to figure out like, how to formulate this. Because the way you're talking about it now, it almost sounds to me like when you're thinking about New Year's resolutions of like, this is the things I want to better about myself. <laughs> I don't want to do that again. And then by Yom Kippur, you're supposed to get to the point of like, I'm, I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with that. Are you, is it? Is it better to tackle yourself as a whole or to find particular parts of you to go after? Right. Do not tackle yourself as a whole because okay. it will not work. Okay. So it's better to focus on like one or two things that like I should have been better at that in the Not life. only, I think I spoke to you about this um, a few weeks ago about personal growth, was not only one or two things. But, not, but make sure that they're not one or two broad strokes. Okay. You don't want to say, okay, you know, I can't tackle everything. I isolated seven areas of my life that I'm just a failure. Okay? And, and you don't use those words. Okay, oh, I'm not a failure. Seven areas of my life 
that you know what I'm deficient in. I have shortcomings. I've got positive things. The whole the oneness of, of me, but you know there are clearly seven areas where I'm deficient, and one of them is anger. You don't walk into Yom Kippur saying, "That's it. I'm never going to get angry again." Absurd. Absurd. It's a blanket stroke. No. What you do is you say, you know what, I really need to work on my anger. Well, let me think of three actual instances where I got angry. Three actual scenarios, events, where I messed up and got angry. And relive them on Yom Kippur. Relive them. Go through, relive them, actually go through, and wow, oh my gosh, that's what I did. Okay, look at the consequence of giving into that anger. See it, really see it, and see that that is literally becoming the epitome of who I am. And there's steps, I don't want to go through all the steps right now, but there's the steps, but ultimately see how that is negatively affecting who you are. And say, I really regret having done that moment. Not I regret getting angry ever, no. Right then and there, look at that, I regret, I made a mistake right then and there, I regret it. I gotta do, I gotta change that. I have to, I have to change. That's, that's what you want to do. And you can do that with as many areas as you want. Right. That you could take 10 areas of your life because you're talking about specific instances. It makes it real. But don't, you know, don't sit there. Try and come up with, put it, however many areas of your life you do, I would say come up with three instances. And if you can't, if, if that's, so now you're like, okay, so if I do five areas, that's going to be 15 instances. That's too much for me, Rabbi. So then don't do five areas then do four areas, three areas. However many three, set, however many sets of three you can handle, that's what you want to go with. That's my suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>